Stem cell science is changing medicine and our understanding of human development. Learn more with the Stem Cell Channel. Visit uctv.tv slash stem cell. My lab uh, studies human pluripotent stem cells. We're especially interested in understanding different stem cell states and their applications. And recently, we've become really excited about using naive stem cells to model trophoblast development. And I know many of you here are interested in that as well, including in Mana's lab. So I'm going to focus on that side of the lab today. Just as a very brief, uh, basic intro, I think most of you are well aware of the amazing capacities of pluripotent stem cells. They can be isolated either from the blastocyst or uh, from somatic cells through direct reprogramming in multiple species. Of course, in the mouse system, we can take these embryonic stem cells and use them to generate transgenic mice through gene targeting, blastocyst injection, um, and uh, germline transmission. And in the human context, we can take these embryonic stem cells and induce pluripotent stem cells and differentiate them towards a variety of clinically relevant cell types and organoids, either for uh, disease modeling and hopefully also for cellular replacement therapy in conjunction with uh, gene correction by CRISPR editing. So my work has really focused on the concept that pluripotency is not a unitary concept, a unitary state. Um, We now appreciate that there are various flavors of pluripotent stem cells that can be isolated from early embryos. This was first worked out in the mouse system, and now increasingly we understand how to capture these different states from human embryos and through human reprogramming as well. So work over the past 10, 15 years has clarified that the canonical human embryonic stem cells that were first derived by Jamie Thompson in the late 1990s, um, even though they're derived from the pre-implantation blastocyst, actually acquire a developmental state that is more akin to the late post-implantation embryo. Um, So they kind of seem to progress from their blastocyst identity towards this more advanced developmental state. And we refer to this as the prime state of pluripotency. This is a terminology introduced by Austin Smith and Jenny Nichols. And so these cells, if you look at their transcriptome and you kind of match that transcriptome to various stages of monkey development or human embryos cultured in vitro, it's quite evident that they resemble the post-implantation epiblast around E13, E14 of development. So that's right around when the cells begin to gastrolate, when they start to specialize into different lineages. Um, So based on transcriptional data, they've clearly moved on from their blastocyst origin. If you look at epigenetics, these prime pluripotent stem cells have high levels of DNA methylation. So if you quantify global levels of CPG methylation, in the prime cells we see around 70 to 80 percent DNA methylation, which is far higher than what is seen in the pre-implantation blastocyst, where you have around 20 to 30 percent of CG dinucleotides that carry a methyl mark on the cytosine. And another important epigenetic aspect of prime pluripotency is the fact that uh, most female prime stem cell lines, both ES and IPS, show signs of X chromosome inactivation, where one of the two X chromosomes is already inactivated. This is, again, different from the situation in the blastocyst, where we know that in human embryos, you actually have two actively transcribed X chromosomes before the embryo implants. 
And then finally, in terms of a more functional property that we should all be concerned about as we use these cells, um, it's been shown both in the human and the mouse context where we have a similar cell type called epiblast stem cells that these prime pluripotent cells often show lineage bias if you try to differentiate them. So you can have lines that are terrific at making ectoderm but cannot at the same time efficiently differentiate towards, let's say, mesoderm or vice versa. And that type of variability in, in differentiation outcome complicates um, a lot of applications related to these cells. So we and others have been interested in trying to push these cells back towards a more primitive stem cell state that we refer to as the naive state of pluripotency. As Mana mentioned, I developed this 5-ILA cocktail for accomplishing this prime-to-naive conversion. There are many other methods out there. Another one uh, that gives a very similar transcriptional state is the uh, T2ILGO method developed by Austin Smith in Cambridge. They use an HDAC inhibitor to get this process started. Um, what's important is that with either of these methods, you end up with a naive stem cell state that clearly has a pre-implantation transcriptional identity. So if you look at, for instance, transcription factors, expressed in these naive cells, they correspond quite nicely to the same transcription factors that you see expressed in the human epiblast before implantation. These cells have globally reduced levels of DNA methylation, again, consistent with a blastocyst identity, and they show X chromosome reactivation in female cells. Now, more recently, we and a number of other labs have shown that these cells also have um, an enhanced potential for extraembryonic differentiation, which opens the door to modeling uh, extraembryonic development diseases associated with the placenta. So I'm going to talk more about that today. Just briefly, you know, what are the potential applications of these naive stem cells? Why are we and others excited about it? The first is this concept of looking at their lineage potential in relation to primed cells. Um, perhaps these naive cells, by virtue of being in this less committed kind of ground state, have less bias in differentiation outcomes. This has not really been tested yet with respect to um, germ layer differentiation. It hasn't been compared side by side, but we do find they have this enhanced extraembryonic potential. They also have potential importance for modeling um, X-linked disorders. I mentioned that the prime cells often show X inactivation. They're also known to undergo erosion of that inactive X chromosome with increased passaging, where the inactive X becomes partially re-expressed. And then when you try to differentiate those cells, they fail to properly inactivate their X chromosome. So this can complicate modeling of X-linked diseases. Many autism spectrum disorders carry mutations on the X chromosome. And so we've shown in collaboration with Catherine Plott at UCLA that these uh, um, cells converted under our naive media actually undergo X chromosome reactivation, and when you differentiate them, they can also initiate de novo X inactivation from the naive state. Another broad point to make is that the naive cells may offer windows into aspects of early development that are difficult to model from the prime state. A good example of that are so-called uh, transposons, jumping genes that are uniquely expressed in the naive cells as well as in early human embryos, um, families like SVA and HERF-K, uh, but are lowly expressed in the prime state. So you can actually uh, figure out what those transposons are regulating, how they are in turn regulated using the naive stem cells. And finally, there's this exciting concept of interspecies chimerism, of trying to get the human pluripotent cells to incorporate into an animal host embryo in order to generate um, human stem cell-derived tissues within a developing animal. So this has been mainly attempted using mice. Uh, it doesn't work very well. 
Now groups are trying this with large animal host embryos. I think that's probably a more sensible approach. But the efficiency of this is still very low. I think it's going to require optimization both of the naive stem cell media and potentially engineering suitable host niches within these uh, animal host embryos. Definitely, though, an exciting space to watch. So my lab is focused on four kind of interrelated aspects of these different stem cell states. The, the one that's really taken off in the past few years is modeling placental development using naive cells. I'm going to tell you about that work in particular today. We are also interested in mapping the transcription factor networks that control these different stem cell states. We've used biochemical approaches with a collaborator at Columbia, Jenlong Wang, to identify proteins associated with OCT4, which is a master transcription factor of pluripotency. And we've identified different epigenetic um, subunits of the BAF complex that are associated with OCT4 in either naive or primed conditions. And we also have this strong interest in further improving the signaling environment of these naive stem cells. So even though these are um, a very useful tool for modeling the early embryo, they're known to undergo imprint erasure. So you have parent-specific imprinting marks that are present in the prime state but become erased due to the excessive demethylation in the naive state. There's also issues with long-term genetic stability under uh, naive conditions. And so we're interested in refining these culture conditions. And finally, we, like many others, are exploring the ability of these naive cells to self-organize into 3D models of the human embryo in order to study human development and also potentially implantation failure. But today, I'll strictly focus on, on this first um, arm of our research program. And so I want to tell you how we became interested in looking at placental uh, differentiation. We performed this um, ATAC-seq analysis in collaboration with DJ Tronos Lab in Switzerland, comparing open chromatin in naive and primed stem cells. And we found that the naive cells are enriched in open chromatin sites associated with the morula and blastocyst stages of human development, as you'd expect. But surprisingly, they also showed significant open chromatin found in the placenta. Um, so that was um, a bit of a curiosity. Uh, we did not expect that, but it reminded me of a prior finding where, based on RNA-seq data, we found that these naive cells show increased expression of various transcription factors associated with the trophoblast lineage, which is the main epithelial cell type um, found in the placenta. And so this raised the question, do these naive cells perhaps have an enhanced potential for extraembryonic differentiation, specifically towards trophoblast fate? You can imagine that because we've pushed these cells back in terms of their developmental state, more towards the point when the epiblast and the trophectoderm initially segregate in the human embryo, they may have increased plasticity to turn into trophoblast cells. Um, just to remind you, uh, trophoblast is an extraembryonic lineage derived from this outer trophectoderm layer of the blastocyst, which gives rise to the um, placenta. Um, critical functions of trophoblast cells are to mediate implantation of the embryo into uh, the, the uterus and to promote maternal fetal exchange of various gases, nutrients, and waste products. If you look at the kind of hierarchy of trophoblast cells in vivo, from that pre-implantation trophectoderm, you generate so-called villus cytotrophoblasts. These are kind of the in vivo trophoblast stem cells, and these in turn can differentiate either into extravillous trophoblasts, these are the invasive cells, um, or the multinucleated and hormone-secreting syncytio trophoblasts. 
So the first question we, we looked at is um, whether these naive cells are able to respond to conditions for human trophoblast stem cell isolation. And this was really inspired by a um, paper published in 2018 by the Arima Lab in Japan. I consider this really to be a landmark paper for the trophoblast field. Um, kind of to contextualize that, back in the 1990s, Janet Rossand in Canada succeeded in deriving mouse trophoblast stem cells, and they've become a really uh, widely used tool to look at uh, mouse trophoblast development. Since then, it's been very difficult to isolate human trophoblast stem cells. But this paper was really the first to succeed. So they worked out culture conditions for deriving human trophoblast stem cells that are self-renewing and bipotent that can differentiate either into EVT or STB fate, um, both from blastocysts and from first trimester placental tissues. So very exciting uh, paper. The one limitation, however... Uh, is really the source of these TSCs at the time. So neither blastocysts nor first trimester placental tissues are widely accessible for many researchers. In fact, where we are in Missouri, the use of first trimester placental tissues in research is very difficult, very controversial, and I fear this will not improve in the current political climate. So we asked this question, can we derive similar trophoblast stem cells from human pluripotent sources? And we tested both our primed and naive lines. And we found that the naive ES cells and IPS cells, when treated with those same uh, media, those TSC media shown here on the left, readily adopted a morphology closely resembling these primary trophoblast stem cells. The primed cells, on the other hand, shown um, on the left here, both the ES cells and the IPS cells, did not acquire the same morphology. They actually acquired a very um, kind of differentiated, neural-looking morphology and barely proliferated. So there's a clear difference in morphology depending on whether you start from a naive or a primed stem cell. But what about molecular markers? So here we perform flow cytometry analysis for two trophoblast-associated cell surface markers, EGFR and integrin alpha-6. And we find that the naive cells treated with these TSC media show strong induction of these surface markers, while the primed cells treated with those same um, culture conditions actually show downregulation of these surface markers. We've also looked at a number of um, transcripts by qPCR, again, noticing high activation of various trophoblast-associated transcripts in the naive cells switched to TSC media, but not the primed cells. You'll notice on this graph that uh, to some extent, these genes are already kind of de-repressed in the naive state compared to the prime state. That's consistent with what I mentioned earlier, but this is further uh, increased upon addition of these trophoblast media. We then asked the question, can these naive-derived TS cells actually differentiate into specialized trophoblast fate? We applied the two methods for lineage-directed um, uh, trophoblast specialization developed in the OKI protocol, either using norequilin and a TGF-beta inhibitor to push them towards extravillous trophoblast fate, or the use of forskolin, which is a cyclic AMP agonist, to generate syncytiotrophoblasts. I'll show you the EVT data first, we're able to generate this typical mesenchymal morphology of EVTs um, using the naive-derived TS cells. They also show activation of HLAG, a key um, surface antigen associated with EVT fate, as well as upregulation of MMP2. And we then performed a transwell matrigel invasion assay to see if these EVs can actually invade, which is their key functional attribute in, in vivo. And indeed, the EVT cells show strong invasive potential through this matrigel transwell, whereas the parental TS cells could not uh, invade as well. 
similarly, we performed uh, directed syncytiotrophoblast differentiation and were able to obtain these multinucleated cells uh, that show induction of CGB, a key component of HCG, which is a major placental uh, pregnancy hormone, as well as upregulation of syndican and downregulation of TAT4, which is more associated with the trophoblast stem cells. And we also confirmed that many of these markers are expressed in the, um, at the protein level in these STBs. So uh, we then did RNA-seq analysis. This is a bulk RNA-seq, and I kind of want to take my time to explain what's on the PCA here, the principal component analysis. So on the right, are the starting prime stem cell lines that we used. When we treat them with these 5i um, media, we generate naive cells shown at the bottom. When you treat those with trophoblast stem cell media, we obtain these naive-derived TS cells shown in red, which have a very similar gene expression profile as the primary trophoblast stem cells isolated by the group in Japan shown in green. So we actually obtained those same cell lines from the Japanese lab, grew them side by side with our own cells in the lab, and then performed the RNA-seq to really make sure that we're comparing apples and apples. Um, what happens to the prime cells that were treated directly with these TSC media, as you can see on the right, they actually acquired a very different state, um, nowhere near the uh, primary TSCs. If you look at the Volcano plot, you can see that the naive cells treated with TSC media really strongly upregulated uh, many trophoblast-associated transcription factors, while the prime cells treated with those same conditions actually activated a number of ectodermal genes, genes like DCX, PAX3, SOX11, which really have nothing to do with trophoblast fate. Um, so just again to make that point, the response to these culture mediums seems very very much determined by the starting state of your stem cells. So putting that together, um, we know from prior work in the field, um, much of which was actually uh, developed here by Mana's lab, that prime cells treated with BMP4 can acquire cytotrophoblast fate, but we find that the naive cells treated with those same media BMP4 do not actually turn into trophoblasts. So it seems that the naive cells are not responsive to BMP4. There's increasing reports coming out that naive cells may not respond to the same growth factors, the same uh, differentiation cues as prime cells. So that's not um, in and of itself surprising. We did find that the naive cells, when treated directly with these trophoblast stem cell media, can turn into trophoblast stem cells, and we don't see the same response starting from the prime state. Um, and similar observations were reported by a number of other labs over the past two years. Now, last year, there were two other papers that came out that modified this protocol. They showed that if you treat the naive cells with a MEK inhibitor and a TGF-beta inhibitor, you can actually transition the cells through a pre-implantation trophectoderm-like state, which they refer to as naive uh, trophectoderm, before pushing them further towards trophoblast stem cell fate. So I think that is a nice modification of the protocol because one thing I haven't mentioned yet, the trophoblast stem cells that we derive clearly have a post-implantation identity. Uh, when you look at their gene expression, they do not match the gene expression program of the trophectoderm in the blastocyst, they're far more similar to cytotrophoblasts in the post-implantation environment. Um, and so with this modification, we can now also kind of uh, perhaps not stably capture, but at least study this pre-implantation trophectoderm step. 
To make matters more complicated, there are also reports coming out that it is possible to generate trophoblast stem cells from primed cells um, if you first treat them with BMP4 or variations thereof and capture this cytotrophoblast-like state and then apply the TSC media. And so there is a big debate, and I look forward to discussing that with many people here today. Um, what really is the nature of the trophoblast stem cells that you generate starting either from primed or naive stem cells? I think that's an important question for the field. Um, I'll point out that um, from our perspective with our interest in studying really how early trophectoderm is specified, um, the naive state does offer a unique perspective there because you're able to model how this lineage is established from a pre-implantation state, which is, of course, what happens in, in vivo in the embryo. So kind of recapping this, why are these studies important? We've proposed that the ability to directly convert naive cells into extraembryonic stem cells may present a functional test for naive human pluripotency. Um, I deliberately um, talk about extraembryonic stem cells more broadly here. This is not restricted to trophoblast. There's work from Josh Brickman's lab in Denmark showing that you can also turn these naive cells into primitive endoderm, which is the other major extraembryonic lineage found in the blastocyst. The conversion of naive cells into trophoblast stem cells gives us a tool with which to study early mechanisms of how trophoblast is specified. It also offers a potentially a renewable, more accessible source of patient-specific human trophoblast stem cells to study diseases associated with the placenta. Now, this field moves very rapidly, so there are now also methods for generating trophoblast stem cells from somatic cells through direct reprogramming. So our methodology is not the only way of generating patient-specific TSC. I want to make that clear as well. And finally, uh, there's a lot of excitement in the field about building 3D models of the human embryo. And just in the past year, there were three, actually more groups, um, reporting the generation of so-called blastoids that contain all the lineages of the blastocyst um, in a proper kind of 3D architecture. And again, they um, exploited the uh, extraembryonic potential of the naive cells to do so. The fact that they can turn both into epiblast trophectoderm and primitive endoderm. So I want to tell you about a different 3D model next, um, not of the entire embryo, but specifically of the placenta. And these are so-called trophoblast organoids. These were derived by two groups in Europe um, a few years ago, starting from first trimester placental tissues. So they isolated cytotrophoblast progenitors, cultured them in matrigel, and then under appropriate organoid supporting media, were able to create the self-renewing trophoblast organoid. So really offering a 3D model of the early placenta that encompasses a variety of different trophoblast cell types. Now, there's one important caveat about these organoids, which is the fact that their architecture does not actually match the precise architecture of the placental villus. So in vivo, the placental villus has this outer layer of syncytial trophoblasts and a more interior CDH1-positive progenitor compartment where the cytotrophoblasts are. Uh, this is shown both here in the micrograph and in the cartoon at the bottom. Whereas the trophoblast organoids actually actually have a more interior syncytial compartment and an outer layer of these trophoblast progenitor cells, the villus cytotrophoblast. So with that um, kind of architectural caveat in mind, still these organoids offer a useful 3D tool to study placental development, but again, they were derived from first trimester placental tissues, which are not readily available in many places. So we asked the question, this is work from my uh, postdoc, Rowan, which was just recently published, um, is 
is it possible to derive similar trophoblast organoids starting from human pluripotent cells using the methodology that we developed where we convert the naive cells into trophoblast stem cells. So we actually compared the ability of trophoblast stem cells from various sources, naive cells, blastocysts, and first trimester placental tissues to self-organize into trophoblast organoids using matrigel droplets and the organoid media that were previously developed uh, by Margarita Turco's lab. And we find that in all cases, the TS cells that we test have the ability to self-organize into 3D structures that can be maintained for up to 10 uh, passages at least. Just a note about the culture media, they're quite similar with some modifications. So when we switch from the 2D TSC culture to the 3D organoid culture, we actually remove this HDAC inhibitor. We add um, recombinant FGF as well as HGF. So there are some modifications, um, but the cells actually adapt quite easily to the 3D culture environment. We did immunostaining to look at the architecture of these stem cell-derived trophoblast organoids, as we call them. Again, they have this inside-out architecture with a more um, exterior uh, layer of cytotrophoblast progenitors marked by ECAT, a more interior syncytial compartment. We do find that a subset of these trophoblast organoids are almost entirely syncytial, as shown here by CGA. And when we do an over-the-counter pregnancy test to detect HCG secretion, they express abundant levels of HCG. So that's a quick test to see if you're actually working with um, trophoblast cells. But importantly, we see that same inside-out architecture that was reported with the primary trophoblast organoids. To get a better understanding of the cellular composition of these organoids, we performed single-cell uh, transcriptome analysis using the 10x genomics platform. And for this, we used both a primary TSC-derived organoid line and a naive-derived organoid line that I refer to as H9. In both cases, we generate... Um, quite similar cellular composition of five major subpopulations to cytotrophoblasts shown on the right, a smaller primitive extravillus cluster in the middle, and two syncytiotrophoblast clusters on the left. So very reassuring to me when I first saw this data is the fact that the overall cellular composition is so similar, regardless of whether you start from primary trophoblast stem cells on the left or naive TSCs on the right. And I say that because, you know, these naive TSCs have a very different history. They came from prime cells that were converted to the naive state from there to trophoblast fate. Um, and they do have some epigenetic differences with primary TSCs. And yet, at the kind of overall level of this UMAP analysis, they look very similar to each other. So we propose that this organoid culture is perhaps a stable attractor state. If you look at specific markers, the CTB clusters show appropriate progenitor marker expression on the right. We see uh, the presence of some EVT markers in that more primitive EVT cluster, as well as syncytiotrophoblast markers uh, towards the left. There is some heterogeneity. So shown here, for instance, is CGB3. This is a more mature STB gene. This is specifically expressed in that upper STB subpopulation. Um, so there is some variability between these clusters. Now, we then map these data to the human embryo. I think that's a critical experiment. To what extent are we actually modeling trophoblast identities that are seen in human embryos? So we used a data set from a group in China um, who cultured human embryos in vitro up to day 14, also in, in the presence of matrigel. And so at the top left here, you can see in color code the subpopulations in our organoids. Um, and superimposed on the UMAP in gray 
are the trophoblast identities in the human embryo. And if you then look here towards the bottom left, you can see that the embryonic cytotrophoblasts really cluster nicely with the two CTB clusters that we have on the right, as do the EVT uh, cells from the human embryo, as do the STB cells from the human embryo. So there's a nice kind of one-to-one correspondence of trophoblast identities in vivo and in these um, organoid models. And on the right here, we've also added temporal data showing that the STBs that were isolated from a later stage of human development, day 14, actually cluster more with that more mature STB cluster towards the top um, compared to earlier STBs. So there is a developmental progression that this model captures as well. Now, one issue that we noticed early on is that the extravillous cluster is quite small and uh, perhaps not fully mature. So we also switched the media to try to capture more specialized EVT organoids. We did this by reducing the level of wind signaling. This was previously worked out for primary trophoblast organoids, and we applied the same protocol to the stem cell-derived organoids. Um, And we find that these EVT organoids indeed show uh, more migratory morphology. You see these invasive projections that emerge. They upregulate MMP2, as well as a number of other EVT markers shown at the bottom right. And we then wanted to do a more functional test. So you can look at all these molecular markers, but the real function of EVT cells in vivo is to invade into the endometrium. So we performed a co-culture assay with human endometrial cells in the presence of matrigel, and we added either the standard um, organoids or the, the low-wind EVT organoids to this co-culture environment where we used two types of human endometrial cells together with matrigel. And the degree of invasive projections, the length of these um, projections was measured in this graph at the bottom. And you can see that the EVT organoids, only in the presence of endometrial cells, show really extensive invasive projections. Um, The moment you remove the endometrial cells, the degree of um, invasion significantly drops. And we also don't see any invasion really using the regular trophoblast organoids in the high wind media. So this suggests that there is some interplay between the endometrial cells and the EVTs, that the endometrial cells may be kind of encouraging the EVTs to invade. And I think this provides a really interesting assay to begin to figure out what are the factors on the endometrial side that are encouraging these EVT cells to actually invade in this co-culture assay. And I think this sets up the question a lot of labs are now interested in, how can we model interactions between these trophoblast models and human endometrial tissues or stem cell-derived endometrial models? Now, we submitted this paper. A reviewer asked a very interesting question, which is, can we use this system to also look at this question of X chromosome inactivation, which is not well understood uh, in the human placenta in mice? It's always the paternal X that's inactivated, both in the placenta and the yolk sac. There's evidence that in the human placenta, X inactivation is more patchy, where you've got entire areas of the placenta that show maternal versus paternal X chromosome silencing. So can we use this system to kind of figure out at what point is the X chromosome shut down, and is it random or perhaps imprinted? So for this purpose, we used a biallelic reporter line that we have in the lab in which both alleles of an X-linked gene, MECP, P2 are labeled with different fluorescent uh, reporters. Because of X inactivation in the primed state, we find that only one of these alleles is actively transcribed. Here it's the green one. 
When we then apply naive media, we can induce reactivation of that second allele. So you see cells that are both uh, red and green, um, very nice here on the facts. So what happens when we turn these naive cells into trophoblast cells? Interestingly, in the TSC media already, we find that that double positive population gets resolved into two discrete single green and single red uh, positive cells, suggesting that there is X inactivation, at least at this locus. Bear that in mind. We're looking at one locus here kind of as a proxy for X inactivation. Um, but it happens already during that transition from naive cells into trophoblast stem cells. It's not quite entirely random. There's some bias here. If you look at that Q3 proportion for the tomato allele, And then what happens when you make organoids? Interestingly, we find that organoids seem to uh, maintain at a clonal level whatever XCI pattern was established in the TSC. So we get organoids that are either entirely red or entirely green. There's a couple that are biallelic, um, suggesting that there is a clonal expansion of the inactivation status in the trophoblast stem cells, and also pointing out that XCI may occur quite early in the human trophoblast lineage. There was a paper just recently in Science from the Saitu lab in Japan, who looked at X inactivation in a non-human primate model. And they actually reported that the trophoblast is perhaps the first lineage to shut down its X chromosome compared to both other embryonic and extra embryonic lineages. So we propose that also in, in human, this may be the case. Now, what is the status of the X in the human placenta? I already mentioned there's been some debate about whether it is homogeneous, patchy, or mosaic. Most of the evidence at the moment suggests that it's quite patchy, where you have entire parts of the placenta that show either maternal or uh, paternal silencing with some bias towards the paternal X. And the model is that this reflects the generation of entire villus trees from trophoblast progenitors at a fairly early stage of gestation. So you have an early choice as to which X chromosome to inactivate, followed by clonal expansion, which is similar to what we see in our in vitro uh, model. We then asked a more um, topical question, which is, can we use this model to investigate susceptibility to emerging pathogens? And um, this is a topic that's widely debated. There's lots of evidence that COVID-19 can lead to pregnancy complications. There's much less evidence that COVID-19 infected women can pass on that virus to the fetus, so-called vertical transmission. So we looked at our single cell data. We find that the entry factors ACE2 and TEMPRS2 are quite restricted, really just to the STB population within our single cell data, especially that more mature STB population towards the top. We then used a chimeric virus that was generated by Sean Whelan at WashU, which contains the VSV backbone and EGFP reporter and either the VSV glycoprotein or the SARS-CoV-2 spike protein. So this allows you to study SARS-CoV-2 infection under reduced biosafety containment levels. We find that the VSVG version of this um, readily infects the organoids. Everything kind of turns green, while VSVS barely infected the organoid. We saw very low level of infection with the SARS-CoV-2 spike protein. Of course, you can say, you know, this is a very artificial scenario with this um, chimeric pseudovirus. What about the live virus? We find that the live virus, likewise, did not readily infect the trophoblast organoids. This is infected at the top, uninfected at the bottom. In contrast, Zika readily infected these organoids. And this is consistent with um, prior data on Zika, of course, um, being readily uh, transmitted to the fetus via the placenta. 
Um, and also we find that Zika entry factors are more widely expressed in the organoid data. So we see a different response to these two emerging pathogens, which we believe is correlated to the level of expression of their entry factors. Now, that said, you might argue this is not the right model, as reviewers did, to, to study trophoblast infection, because you have that inside-out architecture. Remember, we have that outer layer of cytotrophoblasts, which are ACE2 negative, and then a more interior ACE2 positive STB compartment. So is it possible that that inside-out architecture is hindering, preventing the virus from accessing the STBs? So to address that, we actually generated STBs using the lineage-directed protocol from the Okai group, starting from TS cells, so without the organoid context, and then reinfected them with the um, SARS-CoV-2 um, uh, virus, the chimeric virus, and shown in G here versus H, we find that VSVS, again with the SARS-CoV-2 spike protein present, does infect a subset of STB, so we do see some that are getting infected, but the level of infection is far lower than what we see with VSVG, shown on the right. So our interpretation is that there seems to be heterogeneity within the STBs. Some may be able to get infected, both in the 3D context, perhaps more so in the 2D context, but Overall, we see far less infection than with other viruses like VSVG or Zika virus. So to summarize this part, um, I've shown you that uh, HTSCs of various origins can self-organize into these 3D trophoblast organoids. They contain a number of different trophoblast identities that closely correlate with trophoblast cell types in the embryo. These organoids display clonal X-inactivation patterns that uh, are consistent with the patchiness of X-inactivation in the human placenta, and we can use this model system to investigate placental vulnerability to uh, a variety of emerging pathogens. So um, I want to briefly tell you in the remainder of um, my talk about another story that uh, we've been working on. And so having established these 2D and 3D models of the trophoblast, we were wondering, um, can we use this system now to investigate the genetic regulation of human placental development? And a very popular way of doing this is CRISPR screening. So you can do these genome-wide CRISPR screens to identify both essential and growth-restricting genes in various cell lines. So we use the Brunello library, which is genome-wide coverage, um, transduced our trophoblast stem cells, applied Puro, and then passaged these cells up to day 18 and collected DNA at various time points in this experiment for deep sequencing. And so this allows you to measure the abundance of the guide RNAs over time. And the principle is that essential genes are the genes for which the guide RNAs actually drop out over time. So if you look at essential versus non-essential, um, you can see that the essential genes are the ones where the guide RNAs uh, drop out towards the end of this um, CRISPR screen. So we identify around 2,000 essential genes in human trophoblast stem cells. Encouragingly, um, these essential genes tend to be quite highly expressed in a variety of different TSC lines. We've also compared this with so-called core essential genes, which were identified um, by other groups in a variety of different cell lines, including many cancer cell lines. Those genes are also quite highly expressed in the uh, trophoblast stem cells compared to the non-essential genes. And here's an illustration of um, kind of what, what these data look like. So you can see that the guide RNA for the essential genes drops out over time, shown in red. Um, 
And here are two examples, TFAT2C and TF4. These are known trophoblast regulators, so they're shown to be essential. And on the left and right of each of these graphs, you can see the neighboring genes. Um, um, and the neighboring genes do not show that same uh, drop in, um, in guide RNA abundance. These essential genes tend to be enriched in processes such as in utero development, as well as a number of signaling pathways that are directly controlled by the trophoblast stem cell growth factors and inhibitors. So that makes a lot of sense. Um, you would expect these pathways to be essential given that they are directly regulated by the, the factors that we give to support the trophoblast stem cells in the culture media. Now, we then wanted to identify not just essential genes in trophoblast stem cells, but ones that are specific to trophoblast stem cells. So in the Venn diagram, we compare the essential genes in the TSC cells um, to core EGs as well as EGs in prime stem cells that were previously uh, identified by other labs. And so we identified uh, around 870 two essential genes that are unique to trophoblast stem cells that are not unique in these other data sets. And we then asked another question, which is how many of these are actually enriched in the cytotrophoblast in vivo? Ideally, we would identify factors that are not simply essential for the cells in vitro, but also play a role in trophoblast development in vivo. And so doing this comparison, we were able to identify a number of genes that are not only essential specifically in trophoblast stem cells, but also upregulated in cytotrophoblasts in the human embryo compared to epiblast or primitive endoderm. Some examples are shown here. So we've got a number of known trophoblast regulators, genes like GATA2, SKP2. This is known to regulate the cell cycle as well as ERIT3A. So these are more highly expressed in cytotrophoblasts than other lineages in the human embryo. Um, we also pulled out some previously unreported trophoblast regulators such as TAD1, TCAF1, and ERIT5B. TAD1 really caught our eye. So this is a transcription factor which is dispensable for mouse trophectoderm specification. You can knock it out in the mouse embryo, and the trophectoderm still develops just fine. Its paralog, though, TF4, is known to be a key determinant of trophectoderm specification in the mouse. And yet TF1 had a higher rank in our CRISPR screen compared to TF4, if you look at its essentiality based on guide RNA uh, abundance. Now, we looked at expression of TAD1. We find that it is upregulated in the trophoblast stem cells compared to either primed or naive pluripotent cells. It's also highly expressed in the invasive extravillous cells, much lower in the STBs. And we see a nice nuclear localization for TAD1 in our uh, TS cells. So we asked the question, what is the role of this transcription factor in human trophoblast biology? To do that, we made TAD1 knockout cells. So we knocked out TAD1 using CRISPR, first in primed cells, um, this then made naive, and then made TS cells. The reason for doing the experiment this way is that we can actually study the requirement for TAD1 uh, during the transition from prime to naive, as well as from naive to trophoblast stem cells. So um, in the end, we were able to make uh, TAD1 knockout naive cells quite easily. There was no real phenotype going from prime to naive. When we made TS cells, however, there was a delay in uh, differentiation ability. You can see that the TAD1 knockouts initially kind of struggled to reach the, the trophoblast state. But with continuous culture, we were able to make TAD1 knockout cells eventually. So they were able to catch up with the wild-type cells. 
We then performed transcriptome profiling, um, comparing the T at one knockouts with their wild type counterparts, and we found that these T at one knockout trophoblast stem cells showed substantial upregulation of a number of syncytiotrophoblast genes, genes like CGB2, CGB7, and PSG11 while they actually show downregulation of markers associated with EVT fates, such as HLAG, FN1, and integrin alpha-5. And this is also reflected in the um, uh, GO analysis on the right. You can see that STB-associated terms like hormone response were upregulated in the TIAD1 knockout trophoblast stem cells, while many EVT-associated terms were uh, going in the other direction. So that prompted the question, based on kind of this dysregulated gene expression, uh, do these TIAD1 knockout trophoblast cells have a defect when you try to make specialized trophoblast cells? So we pushed them either towards extravillous trophoblast fate or towards syncytial trophoblast fate, both wild type and knockout in parallel. And we find that the TIAD1 knockout uh, TSCs did a really poor job of making extravillous trophoblasts, so they don't acquire that nice migratory morphology that you expect from EVTs. They also showed reduced expression of HLAG, um, as well as reduced chromatin accessibility at this EVT locus by ATAC-seq, whereas they actually showed increased expression of CGB, which is, again, more associated with STB fate, which you really don't expect from EVT cells. Um, on the other hand, when you push them towards syncytiotrophoblasts, they were actually more efficient at generating syncytiotrophoblasts than the wild-type cells. They also showed increased expression of some genes associated with STB fate um, and reduced expression of keratin-17, which is more associated with EVT and um, trophoblast progenitor fate. So this suggests that uh, TAD1 uh, may be a critical regulator for this kind of balanced lineage potential of the trophoblast stem cells. It seems that in the absence of TIAD1, the cells cannot complete EVT differentiation faithfully, and yet they adopt STB fate uh, more readily. Now, just as um, um, kind of a final point, we not only identified essential genes in this analysis, but these CRISPR screens also allow you to do the inverse analysis and look at genes whose guide RNA abundance actually increases over time, as shown here. These are called growth-restricting genes, so they likely play an opposite role in uh, the cell type of interest, um, namely to restrict the growth of, uh, in this case, trophoblast stem cells. We identified 619 growth-restricting genes in this assay. One of these is GCM1. This is a factor associated with syncytiotrophoblast fate, suggesting that that factor actually reigns in the growth of the trophoblast stem cells. We validated a number of these hits, including TET2. Um, interestingly, this seems to be growth-restricting in the human context. It's been reported to do the opposite in the mouse context. And PTBN14, another growth-restricting gene, is a phosphatase that is known to interfere with YAP. And YAP is a key uh, trophoblast determinant, so that also makes intuitive sense. So when you knock down these genes, the proliferation of the TS cells actually increases. Now, these GRGs seem to fall in two broad categories. There are ones that are enriched in cytotrophoblasts in vivo, like the example shown here. Um, so these factors are probably preventing the excessive proliferation of trophoblast cells. So they're, again, more abundant in trophoblasts in vivo than in other lineages. And we think these are great candidates for thinking about what's responsible for choriocarcinoma, which is a tumor of trophoblastic origin, Potentially, genes such as these are dysregulated um, in that cancer and then cause excessive trophoblast proliferation. There's also the opposite category, 
growth-restricting genes that are actually more highly expressed in the neighboring cell types, like epiblast and primitive endoderm, compared to cytotrophoblast. Some examples are shown here. These include genes like nodal and TBX3, which are actually pluripotency-associated. So we propose that these factors may be preventing trophoblast programs from becoming activated in these other cell types. Now, finally, we looked at um, conservation with mouse data. So we wanted to know to what extent are the essential and growth-restricting genes in this human context shared with mouse trophoblast. And there was um, a very um, important paper from Miriam Hemberger's lab a few years ago who did a large-scale mouse phenotyping analysis and identified genes that cause placental defects. It's probably not an exhaustive resource, but still it gives you a pretty good idea of what genes are necessary for placental development in the mouse. So when you intersect these data with our trophoblast stem cell essential and growth-restricting genes, there's... um, a little degree of overlap. It's not um, overwhelming, but there are 20 candidates that are actually conserved between these data sets shown here. And these 20 genes are more highly expressed in human villocytotrophoblasts compared to other cell types found at the human um, maternal fetal interface. So again, that's somewhat reassuring. You would expect these conserved regulators to be more highly expressed in the villocytotrophoblast compartment. What was interesting, though, is when you look at some, some prominent examples within this list of 20, there are several mitochondrial genes included here. So again, these are genes that are essential for human trophoblast stem cell um, growth have also been implicated in placental dysfunction in mouse. Um, And again, it's not a very long list, but this does suggest that metabolism, oxidative phosphorylation is a really um, conserved um, uh, regulator, both of mouse and human trophoblast biology. And you can see that these candidates tend to be indeed more specifically expressed in the trophoblast cells at the human fetal maternal interface. I think that opens up um, kind of an avenue for further work into how, how does mitochondria regulation affect trophoblast biology. So to summarize this part, um, I uh, showed you our data reporting genome-wide CRISPR screen where we identified both essential and growth-restricting regulators. We um, did a lot of follow-up on one of these candidates, the essential transcription factor TED1, and proposed that it plays a human-specific role, uh, particularly in EVT differentiation from trophoblast stem cells, although it also has some phenotype in both specification and maintenance. Um, We also uh, report a number of conserved trophoblast regulators, which are enriched in mitochondrial genes. And overall, we think this is really a starting point for now kind of uh, following up on these candidates, both in the 2D model, potentially in the trophoblast organoid model. One can also think about uh, looking at the role of these regulators in the trophectoderm within the blastoids that are now being created by a number of groups to begin to understand what are the factors that control trophoblast specification and potentially placental uh, dysfunction. So with that said, I want to give a big shout out to the people who actually did the work, um, including my student Chen Dong. He was actually the one who pioneered our naive to trophoblast stem cell efforts, and he also led the CRISPR screen effort, a very productive graduate student. He just defended his thesis, the first one from my lab, and the uh, organoid work was entirely performed by Rowan Carvis, who's a postdoc in the lab, um, with help from all the others, as well as our generous collaborators at WashU. I also want to give a big shout out to our generous funding sources, both at NIH, as well as a number of private foundation grants. So with that, I'll be glad to take your questions.
Thanks. Great talk. I have two questions, mm-hmm. actually. Can you comment on the ability of the naive versus the primed to induce trophoblast stem cells? There seems to be a lack of a repression complex to me in the naive. And I've never seen anyone look at that, and it's probably a complex of polycomb-related groups and a number of things. Can you comment on that? Yeah, so the, the initial thought we had, it's, it's a great point. Um, what is really the molecular basis for this extraembryonic potential? So my initial thought was it's all about DNA methylation. Something really striking about both naive human stem cells and trophoblast stem cells is that they're both very hypomethylated. They have you know, only 20 to 30% uh, CPG methylation. So th- that was my initial thinking. I know through the grapevine, that there might be other um, molecular causes as well. And kind of to give a, a clue there is when we looked in our organoid data, we find that a particular microRNA cluster that's implicated in trophoblast biology in chromosome 19 is significantly induced in the organoids and the TS cells, but also in the naive cells compared to the primed cells. So one speculation is that potentially um, a key uh, non-coding element like that, like these placenta-specific microRNAs, could play a functional role in allowing the naive cells to convert, but not the primed cells. But again, we can't talk in kind of black and white terms about this. There, there is lots of evidence, including work being done here, that you can push these prime cells towards a trophoblast fate with some you know, modifications of, of the method where you first pretreat them with BMP4. So I, I think there's a lot of work to be done in kind of resolving what is the molecular cause. But I think potentially the combination of hypomethylation and activation of some of the specific microRNAs um, may, may give part of the answer. And then the second question is on your organoids, yep. your 3D culture, uh, the X activation. Mm-hmm. Have you looked at exist, exact, yep. is that expressed? Yep. And have you found any escaping genes? Yeah, so there are escapees. We see that in our single cell data. So we had really two lines of evidence here. We had the reporter line, and we looked in the single cell data, looked at mono versus biallelic expression of X-linked genes. It's a little tricky to do that with single cell data, but we were able to do it. So we haven't done the detailed analysis exist exact by RNA fish, and that really needs to be done uh, in order to, to properly uh, investigate X inactivation. We weren't even doing this work, and then the reviewer came in and said, can you look at this aspect? But I think it's a great question. Um, how is HBK27 trimethylation regulated, for instance, uh, during the process of trophoblast stem cell induction? So I can't comment on it yet, but I think it's a great model system to study X inactivation uh, from human-naive cells. Can I ask a follow-up question to that, actually? So I think uh, Jose Polo and his group had looked at uh, the reprogramming Mm -hmm. um, uh, fate map going Mm -hmm. from a somatic cell to trophoblast stem cell. And um, their conclusion was that it uh, sort of skips over, you know, you don't have, the the reprogramming is done with the same um, factors as reprogramming to to pluripotency, uh, but it doesn't seem to go all the way to, it doesn't seem to have to go all the way to naive yep. in order to make it to trifactoderm. Yep. So can you comment on that and your, any insights into that? Yeah, I, this is a great point. Do you have to go through pluripotency to reach trifectoderm fate, right? So is it possible to directly turn a somatic cell into a trophoblast cell without actually proceeding through pluripotency? I suppose it's possible. Um, 
I do believe there's data within the Polo paper suggesting that there is some activation of, of an intermediate, like totipotent state. One possibility is that the cells go through an eight cell-like state. You may have seen these papers come out recently where labs are trying to create even earlier cells that are not quite naive, but perhaps an early totipotent precursor. So, you know, I can't exclude that possibility. Um, I, I guess developmentally it might make sense if trifectoderm is specified very early on, kind of after that eight cell point. So, yeah, I can't rule it out. <laughs> and then a question uh, from the virtual audience, from Dr. Alon Gorin. Uh, he says, thanks for the interesting talk. Um, how do you decide which factors inhibitors to add when optimizing the media conditions? I suppose he's talking about naive? Okay, yeah, this is a big effort in the lab. So we did a chemical screen in collaboration with Novartis where we identified um, small molecules that can maintain naive stem cells using a specific reporter linked to the distal enhancer of OCT4. This is what we previously used to identify the 5-ILA cocktail. And we were especially interested in factors that can replace MEK inhibitors because MEK inhibitors have been identified as a major cause of instability both in mouse and human stem cells. And somewhat disappointingly, most of our hits hit that same pathway. So they're FGF pathway hits. Interestingly, though, we still pull out a number of alternative inhibitors of the pathway, both upstream and downstream, that give us different phenotypes in culture, including um, more stability, potentially faster reprogramming kinetics as well. So there's not a lot of room to work with. I think you have to hit that pathway at somewhere, you know, at the level of the receptor, RAF, MEK, ERK. But if you I, I'm hopeful that by reaching kind of an optimal combination of these enzyme uh, kinase inhibitors, we can further improve the naive phenotype. But this is very much an active area, and, and you know, many labs are active in this space, but hopefully we'll get there. <laughs> you made a comment that the naive PSE-derived TSCs are post-implantation-like, whereas naive PSE are pre-implantation-like. I was just wondering if you had any thoughts about why that is, if you expected that result, and... Yeah, so, so th I think the, the answer is that the media developed by Okayadol simply capture the cells in a post-implantation identity. So from that point of view, it's very similar to the original Jamie Thompson media, the FGF activin-based media for capturing human primed stem cells. They're just not consistent with a pre-implantation identity. So when you treat naive cells with the Okayadol media, these initial human trophoblast stem cell media, you push them towards that later um, state. Now, is there a way to, to trap them at that earlier state? Again, based on these papers last year using MEK, dual MEK and TGF-beta inhibition, it is possible to pass the cells for a couple of days through a pre-implantation trifectoderm state, but no one has yet been able to successfully capture that state in vitro. Um, another way to do it, though, is to build these blastoid models, because it's pretty clear that the blastoids have an actual pre-implantation trifectoderm that is not you know, post-implantation trophoblast. So I think there are two ways of getting there. Um, perhaps both start from naive. You can either directly make this pre-implantation TE for a couple of days or make a blastoid. But there is still this, this unanswered question, can we stably arrest human trifectoderm stem cells in vitro? And I think that's kind of a new, uh, maybe the next um, objective for the field to do so.